What does it look like to find peace in life? How do we define peace? Um, I think many of us would define it as maybe something like a simple life or a sense of financial stability or maybe healed relationships that have been strained or broken. Uh, some of us search for peace and finding that right job that's going to suit our personality and our goals. I think peace, however we define it, is something that we're all chasing, um, and it's elusive. It often feels like we haven't quite found it. Um, and I think when you just kind of look at artists and poets and thinkers and writers, you just you see that this subject of peace is, is on our minds as people and has been for a long time. So just a quick uh, highlight reel of some of these. Um, American poet Walt Whitman said this, peace is always beautiful. An African proverb says this, peace is costly, but it's worth the expense. American philosopher and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nobody can bring you peace but yourself. And that's actually a theme that we're going to see in some of these others. According to Buddha, peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. The great theologian Marvin Gaye, if you cannot find peace within yourself, you will never find it anywhere else. The Dalai Lama, do not let the behavior of others destroy your inner peace. Marie Forleo, an American life coach and motivational speaker, says, we need to reclaim our power and realize that we're in charge of our time, our happiness, and our inner peace. Author and psychotherapist Amy Marin says, mental strength and inner peace go hand in hand. Mentally strong people are confident that they can handle whatever life throws their way. Science fiction writer Larry Eisenberg for peace of mind, we need to resign as general manager of the universe. And then my favorite one, this is anonymous. To find inner peace, search deep inside yourself. Is there a donut there? If not, take corrective action. So we're all looking for peace in some way. And just even looking at that brief survey, and, and I think you just reading through those, you get a sense, you've heard this kind of thing before. Um, it all paints a picture that peace is a major goal in our lives. We're after it. It can be achieved. It often is viewed as coming from within us. Peace is ours to find, ours to keep, ours to lose. Everyone wants peace, but it is hard to define. And our culture is preaching peace in a million ways and promising peace in a million ways. There's self-help self-help books, inspirational social media quotes, life coaches, songs, movies, TV shows. But what if we do everything they all suggest? What if we do it all? What if we declutter our houses, just go through it, get rid of everything and just get everything orderly? Is that going to do it? Or what if we work out that many times a week or dial in our diet or just change our mindset, tune out the critical voices in our life, uh, turn inward and reclaim our power, adopt a, a mindset of peace, where we find that perfect companion who's gonna complete us, or that perfect career that's suited to our aspirations. This is what our culture is saying we do to find peace. What if we do all those things or achieve them? Are we gonna really feel lasting, heart-level, soul-level peace if we find those things? I think our experience tells us no. There's just too many unhappy people who have all those things. We might be given a momentary uh, pang of peace in finding these things, but they usually, at least in my experience, they sort of evaporate when something comes along and unsettles us. Or we just grow tired 
of exerting the energy of having the right mindset. And so our fears and insecurities just sort of creep back into our minds like weeds. But there is a peace that we can have that is not only possible, it's better than all that stuff. But it doesn't play by our rules, and this type of peace does not fit into our categories. And we're going to discover what that is like this morning. So this is the question we're going to be thinking about today. How can I find peace? And we're going to discover the answer uh, at the end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the second letter. You might think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, okay, find peace, you find it in God, right? Prioritize your relationship with God, that'll bring you peace. Follow Jesus, that'll bring you peace. Go to church, that'll make you feel more peaceful or be financially generous or just pray a lot. Those are all good things. They're God-honoring things. We are called to do those things. They sound like the right answer, but they're actually not. So how can we find peace? We're going to learn in 2 Thessalonians. So if you brought your Bible, uh, turn to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, it's found right here in the middle of the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians. Um, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the table, so feel free to grab one of those. You can actually take it home if you don't own a copy. Uh, but we love to take notes and circle things and highlights and just really engage with God's Word, though we will have the Scripture on the screens as well if you would prefer uh, to follow along in that way. So this chapter, chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians, is the last chapter of Paul's correspondence that we know of with this church in the city of Thessalonica. And uh, let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. So let's stop there. Uh, you can get a sense a little bit that Paul's wrapping up because he says this first phrase, you know, as for other matters, it's like I've covered the main things. Like there's a few things left that I'm going to cover here. Um, and then he asks for prayer for himself, and he makes this wonderful statement in verse 3. I would highlight this if you're taking notes. He says, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. And that's such an amazing phrase. You know, it's just so familiar to us, especially if you've been in church for a good part of your life. The Lord is faithful just sounds like, yeah, okay, he's faithful. But the word in Greek that Paul used in the original version for faithful is closer to our understanding of trustworthy. And I think that's really important because when we say, at least I've used it this way, the Lord is faithful, th that to me usually means uh, something he does. He's faithful, he's going to do these things for me. But trustworthy is different. This is who God is. He is trustworthy. The Lord is trustworthy. And so when you hear faithful and see faith in, in the Bible, I think it's really a, a good idea to kind of make that translation in your mind to trust or trustworthy. That really is closer to what the biblical writers were talking about. Um, so the Lord is trustworthy. He's faithful. And he's going to do several things, Paul says. And I want to highlight these. He says he's going to strengthen. He will strengthen you. 
and he's going to protect you from the evil one. And then he says, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. This church, as we've seen in this series, uh, the Thessalonians were dealing with all kinds of doubts and fears and persecution and violence and just all of this stuff that was caused. They they did not have peace about a number of things. And Paul is saying they're going to find strength in the Lord who's trustworthy. They're going to find protection from the evil one and those who are are persecuting them. And God's going to lead their hearts into the terrain where they need to be, loving others. God's going to lead their hearts, shape their hearts in the way they need to go. So the Lord is trustworthy, and he's going to work these things out in you. So he's, he's, you can kind of get a sense, he's starting to draw this letter to a close. He's making some kind of broader statements about who God is. God's going to bring about these things in your life. And then Paul really switches gears in the next verse. And it's in these times when we're reminded this is a real letter. This is an ancient letter that Paul sent at one time to a church, a specific church, uh, about real things going on with them. And there are, of course, universal principles we can draw from it. But he was talking to a real church that he knew personally and knew, knew what was going on. So what happens in the next verse um, is he, he switches gears and he kind of has a, oh yeah, I forgot moment. And there's like one more topic he wants to talk about. Uh, most scholars believe Paul dictated his letters verbally which is why the letters, if you read them, they have almost a verbal quality to them. So, so I picture Paul kind of pacing around. He's saying all this stuff. There's a scribe, you know, furiously trying to keep up with Paul and write all this stuff down. And Paul goes, oh, yeah. And, and in verse 6, he kind of has this one more topic he wants to get to before he closes the letter. So let's look at what he says. Verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. Highlight those two words if you're taking notes. Idle and disruptive. Keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. For we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, and I would highlight this, this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Highlight that, busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Highlight that, our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So this is that topic that Paul wanted to get to. That He he was like, oh yeah. So let's talk about what this is, because there's some interesting things in here. Paul says, uh, steer, basically steer clear of believers who are idle and disruptive. Um, I had you highlight those two words, idle and disruptive. Those two words in English are a translation of one word in Greek that Paul used that meant unruly or disorderly. It was used in the ancient world in military contexts for people who just didn't get with the program and they caused problems for their unit. And, and we have a picture in the early church that Christians took care of each other. 
They really did. They, they, they shared their possessions. They took care of the poor. They took care of slaves. They took care of widows. The church was one of the few places in the brutal Roman world where people could find dignity and belonging when they did not have money or status. And it appears from what Paul's saying here that this particular church in Thessalonica, there were some people taking advantage of this taking advantage of the mutual care of the church. People who were perfectly capable of working and earning a living and feeding themselves and even helping others, and they just weren't. They were just sort of taking advantage. And Paul calls these people busybodies. Um, I love in the original language Paul uses, the, the literal word that they translate as busybodies is workarounders. It's like the verb for work and then the prefix that means around. It's like the picture of these people who just never really want to get in the game and help or serve. They're just kind of on the outside just taking. And, and, and so Paul, this is a big problem for this church. They, this is leading to frustration in this community, disunity. And Paul's encouraging them not to be idle in this way. And he quotes this, this policy he put in place, the one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. And what that means is they actually had a rule in this community. Look, if you're going to be here and you can contribute, you should. If you're going to just take, you, you can't do that. There's people here who actually need this food who can't earn this themselves. And so that was kind of a policy uh, that they had in place. Um, and so Paul is saying that can't continue. So Paul went back to this topic because he knew this church was struggling with this. He wanted to make sure to talk about it. Um, and then he kind of finishes this section by saying this interesting couple of verses. He says, take note of those who don't obey the instruction in this letter, and not just that part about the food, the whole letter. Take note of people who aren't doing that and don't associate with them. Does that strike you as a little strange? Just don't associate with them. I mean, that sounds harsh to me for Paul to say, just don't associate with people who aren't like, following his teachings to the letter. Um, but what we have to understand is Paul's not talking about just sort of a general inclination to sin, like just don't be around people who are sinful. I mean, that's out of sync with everything else Paul ever said. He, he's talking about people who are willfully, deliberately ignoring everything he's taught them. And you have to remember, this is in the 50s AD that this letter was written. There was no Bible like we have. This church in Thessalonica, you know what they had? They had the gospel that they heard from Paul. Paul was with them for three weeks, and then he left and sent them a couple letters. That's all they had. The Bible, as we know it, came together over the next few centuries. So Paul is saying, look, if people in your midst are just ignoring everything we've said in these letters, they're basically ignoring everything. They're, they're not in any way buying into the values of this community. It's causing confusion. It's causing disunity. And Paul was always working for disunity. And it does sound harsh to say, you know, don't associate with them. They'll feel ashamed. It's like, wow, is Paul saying shame these people who are like not following the word of God? I mean, that, that sounds really hard. Um, but we have to remember Paul knows these people. So he's not talking in theory. He knows these individuals who are acting this way, and he's really talking more about tough love. It's like, you got to let them know that they're, they're not walking in step with what the Lord's called them to, and they will feel ashamed or repentant or they'll feel convicted if you make it known to them that they're not really following the Lord's call. That's the picture he's painting. Um, but I do want to just quickly say one thing about interpreting the Bible. This is a really important principle of descriptive versus prescriptive. Um, 
when you, when you read the Bible, some things are prescriptive, meaning they're prescribed for all believers of all time. This is a rule. You follow it to the letter no matter who you are in whatever context. For example, Jesus said, love your enemies. That is a prescription. If you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be about what he is about, you love your enemies. But there are some things in the Bible that are descriptive, meaning we're reading about something that happened, but it's not an endorsement of it. The Bible describes lots of things that aren't endorsed. A great example of that in the Old Testament is polygamy. There were a lot of people in the Old Testament who were in these polygamous marriages, and I've heard people say, well, the Bible teaches polygamy. It's like, no, no, it's describing that some people engaged in that, and it's a cautionary tale. So just because it's in the Bible laid out doesn't mean it's a prescription for all of time in every circumstance. And so in the letters in particular, it's kind of hard because sometimes it is universal stuff for all of us. Sometimes it's a particular congregation in the first century dealing with something, and it doesn't mean that every church has to be exactly that way for all of time. I think this part about Paul saying, don't associate with these people causing disunity and they'll feel badly about it, and then they'll come back to a place of faith. I think that's more descriptive. That particular church, he knew those people who were causing disunity, and he knew them. And he's like, if you tell them about their error and you kind of step back, that they're going to come to a place of repentance. So this is not a universal prescriptive policy for all time. When you see someone not following the Bible, don't associate with them. Because that would fly in the face of everything else that Jesus said, that Paul said about accepting people and, and even with their flaws as they grow. And so I just wanted to make that point that when you encounter these hard passages that seem to go against so much of the rest of Scripture, there's probably a context thing, and it might be more of a descriptive situation than making a rule or a policy for all believers to follow. So I just want to quickly say that. Um, so that was Paul's tangent. He was like closing his letter and he's like, oh yeah, I need to talk about the food um, because you guys are messing up the food thing and there's all this disunity around that. And now he's gonna come back to actually closing the letter. He has three verses, three more verses. And this is where we discover our answer to that question about peace. How do we find peace? And they needed to know that by the way, because they had all kinds of disunity happening in this church. So Paul says this, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Highlight those two phrases, the Lord of peace and give you peace. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. See right there, he probably, this is ancient convention, a scribe would be copying what Paul's saying, and then at the end, he says, give me that. And he signs his name at the end. That's what he was just doing. This is how I write. This is how you know this is genuinely from me. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's the end of the letter. That's the end of 2 Thessalonians and the end of the correspondence between Paul and this church that we know of. So those last few verses give us insight into this question. How can I find peace? Paul said it right there. You can't. It's given to you by the Lord of peace. It's given to you. You can't find it. It's not something we can achieve on our own. It can't be found within us, despite what all the self-help gurus will say. 
It's not a spiritual formula of do these things for God and the result is that you'll feel peaceful. That's actually not the answer either. Peace is given to us by the Lord of peace. This goes against all of our inclinations as Western people, this truth right here. Because we are about self-achievement, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, aspiring to things, achieving goals. Just receiving something that we don't deserve is hard. (laughs) We don't do well with that. Grace is another topic like that in Scripture. God's grace, it's a gift. It's God treating us in a way we don't deserve. And we can't earn it in the first place. And even when we're given it as a gift, we can never pay it back. It is truly just a gift. And it's the same with peace. And I think many of us of faith, we will trust in God for salvation and we'll believe that he's real. And we might even come to a place of like, I just want to receive God's grace. I need God's grace. But still yet we spend our lives searching for peace in other places as if it's up to us to achieve. We've got to work on ourselves to find peace. Or that peace can be found in some place other than in Christ. But peace can't be found at all. It's another one of the gifts that comes from God, like grace. Only God can give it. True, lasting peace comes from God, the origin of peace, the giver of peace. And this idea that that peace comes from the Lord, not something we can achieve, this actually is just one piece of a thread that we've been tracing throughout First and Second Thessalonians, if you've been keyed into this. And so I want to just make sure we don't miss that, uh, because I feel like it's this foundational idea that Paul wanted us to grasp throughout these two letters. Um, and it's this idea that we have to rely on and trust God for everything we need and everything he wants to be true of us. We can't manufacture these things. We can't just work hard enough. We can't be moral enough. We can't strive for these things and achieve them. God has to do them in us. But we so easily rely on ourselves and try to do work that only God can do, and we cannot bear that burden. We can't do it. Jesus already carried the weight of everything. And if we try to bear bear that weight on ourselves, it's crushing. We can't achieve our salvation. We can't achieve our spiritual growth. We can't achieve a sense of purpose. We can't achieve peace in our lives and our own strength. It comes from God who empowers us for these things. So just a quick overview of some of these ideas over the last couple of months that we've encountered. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul said this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You can't make yourself happy. You can't manufacture joy. It is given by the Lord. It's given by the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. You can't just act loving toward people. You can't just adopt a loving persona and sustain that in a genuine way in your own strength over your life. If you want to be loving in the way that Christ is loving, he has to do that in and through you. May the Lord make your love increase. In the very next verse, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul said this, May Christ strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all of his holy ones. We can't strengthen our own hearts. That word strengthen has the image of propping up. 
We can't prop up our own hearts to live and believe and go through life in the way that, that God has called us to. God has to prop up our hearts to follow his call. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24, I love these verses. May God himself, here it is again, the God of peace, sanctify you, that means grow you spiritually. May he sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at this verse, 24. The one who calls you is faithful, trustworthy, and he will do it. Your growth, your peace, he will do it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. God gives us the encouragement and the hope that we need. We can't just try to muster up a positive outlook. Eternal encouragement, real hope and, and peace about the future is a gift from God that he does in us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. We just read that. If we want to love like God loves, if we want to be steadfast in our faith, the Lord has to direct our hearts there. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. Yes, peace comes from God, the God of peace, the Lord of peace. True, lasting peace comes from God, the giver of peace. We have to trust that. We call this series Life in the Light. Paul uses that language in 1 Thessalonians. We are children of the light. That's not just about knowing God or trusting him for salvation. It's about trusting in him for everything, for everything after our salvation, for the rest of our life, for all of our growth, everything we need. We cannot find peace in another person or in a profession or a possession or some sort of just attitude about life. We can't just strive spiritually or just work on behavior modification and hope that we end in a place of real lasting peace. It won't happen. Now, I do want to say that everything I'm saying in no way conveys that we don't take a proactive uh, stance in our growth or dealing with the struggles we're having. There are times, of course, where we turn to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ for advice or encouragement, or we go seek therapy or counseling or, or treatment of some kind, yes, we do those things. But it all has to fall under the umbrella that, that those are mechanisms God is using in our life, that God ultimately is going to be the author of any peace and hope that we have. Whatever mechanism he uses to bring that about, it comes from him. It does not come from our own striving or from somewhere inside of us. This is a profound shift in thinking that we cannot find peace on our own, we cannot conjure it from within, that it comes from outside of us and is given to us by the Lord of peace. It's about surrendering to that and trusting. You may remember uh, this prophecy in Isaiah. It's from 700 years before Jesus lived. Uh, we typically read it around Christmas. But when prophesying, predicting what the Messiah would do one day, this was part of the prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He was going to be the bringer of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Peace, the giver of peace. And when he when that Prince of Peace was born, he, he grew up and then began to teach us about himself. And he said this incredibly life-giving statement in Matthew eleven twenty eight. You may be familiar with this. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I actually think that's a really good biblical definition of peace, is a rest that only God can give. Did you notice Jesus didn't say, come to me and you'll find rest? He said, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest is something he gives. Peace is something he gives. So let's stop just looking within ourselves for peace or looking to our circumstances or our relationships to deliver peace. They can't and they won't. We have to look to the one who is peace, who is able and desires to give us real lasting peace and paid the highest of costs to give us that peace. It all comes back to Christ. He saves us. He grows us. And we grow together in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this is made possible by the Lord. We cannot do any of it in our own strength. We must rely on him. We must trust him, the Lord of peace, to give us peace, to give us rest.